Hey everybody, welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a terrific guest for you today, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Uh, we'll get to her in a second, but first let me thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's some feedback we got recently. On our interview with cult expert Stephen Hassan, Joan writes, I just listened to this podcast. If this doesn't scare the shit out of you, you're not alive. OMG, overwhelming. I have friends in these churches, and it's sad. Sandy and Ed said, kudos, love the podcast. And hey, did we hear Stephen Hassan say a former KGB disclosed Trump was recruited a long time ago by the Ruskies? That you did. And he did. And he was. On Mary Trump interview, Liz Benjamin writes simply, Love her! Exclamation point. Who doesn't love Mary Trump? On our interview with my tragedy buddy, Chrissy Carroll, Barry Rains writes, It's not like a divorce. Your spouse died. I love my first wife. And I'm lucky my current wife understands the difference. All right, it's time for Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a professor of history at New York University. She writes about fascism, authoritarianism, and propaganda. She is the recipient of Guggenheim and other fellowships, an advisor to protect democracy, an MSNBC opinion columnist and television commentator, and publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy. Her latest book, Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, looks at how illiberal leaders use propaganda, corruption, violence, and machismo and how they can be defeated. Ruth, welcome back into the back room. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start off with uh, the 215, allegedly 215-pound gorilla in the room, Donald Trump. <laughs> it seems like as the indictments are mounting and his legal troubles are mounting, he's becoming more of a cornered rat, and he's sounding way more dangerous and authoritarian. Yeah, and that, that makes sense because the the playbook is um, the more legal trouble you have, the more you've got to get into office or back into office so that you can shut it all down. And so we should believe him when he says he's going to try you know, lock people up. Um, now his allies are like Marjorie Taylor Greene are saying we have to defund Jack Smith's investigation. You know, Jim Jordan has a sham subcommittee. They're all like... Um, out there trying to protect him at any cost because the situation is indeed very grave for him. You mentioned a few things there, and I definitely want to get into those things individually. But I, I was very disturbed at that uh, Glenn Beck interview when he said, I'll have to lock people up because that's what they're doing to us. It, mm -hmm. You know, I still struggle with the question of, does he really believe he's a victim? Or is this just all evil genius strategy because he knows he's screwed and it's the only thing that he can do to potentially save himself and avoid the prosecution and stay out of prison ultimately? It's a little of both. Um, the only He knows perfectly well that he's not really the victim, um, but there's part of his personality. He's a very damaged person and he's very brittle and insecure and you know, just a totally messed up person. Um, and we know this from, you know, reading about his his father too and their relationship. So part of him has this insatiable need, like all the guys that study for um, constant control, 
It's never enough control for applause, for adulation. And if they don't get that, they already feel um, a bit victimized, much less uh, if something goes wrong with their plan. So that's the part where that's the kind of emotional damage part. But the rest is just BS. He knows perfectly well that he's broken the law. He's He's been breaking the law his entire life. His business model and his father's business model, they were predicated on breaking the law. Um, so, so, and, and this, you know, the Biden regime thing, I've been tracking that for two years now. This is the classic, you make, you make de democracy into tyranny. This is what Orban does too. It's, it's a kind of global thing. And Putin's been saying that, you know, democracy is tyranny. And freedom comes uh, when you can, you know, uh, have fascism, basically. And in his case, in Trump's case, it's um, that waging information warfare to try and get people to believe that because we have to wear masks and all the other things that uh, Biden is out to, you know, kind of suppress our freedoms. That's that's part of reframing January 6th as um, something that protects freedom. And thus all the charges against him are just corrupt. He's literally telegraphing what he would do if he were to get back into the office. And as you yeah. mentioned, certainly firing prosecutors and shutting down the investigations and the cases would seem high on his list, similar to like what Netanyahu is trying to do in Israel. Yeah. What is your biggest fear with Trump 2.0? Should he ever get back in the Oval Office? Well, the, there's a top-down issue and a bottom-up issue. The bottom-up issue is that he and his allies are trying very hard to incite violence, to incite civil war, whatever that would look like, to or more likely just constant unrest, um, constant shootings, constant kind of domestic terror actions. And the the end game is to show, is to kind of, get more Americans to feel they need a strongman to stop all the chaos and that democracy doesn't work, that Biden is weak. So I worry about that kind of violence from below. When, when you have sitting lawmakers like M Matt, Getz, who, Matt Gates, who's been going around saying, only through force will we be able to bring change to Washington. This is incitement to violence. So I'm worried about that. And if he gets back into power, he will almost certainly use every executive tool from executive orders to calling a state of emergency so that if people remember after the Black Lives Matter protests, when he flooded Washington with all those troops, they were unmarked troops. It was very, if you study like, you know, Cold War military juntas and stuff, it was very scary to see those troops and nobody really knew who they were. Um, a lot of them were unmarked. Um, he would that was him and the whole Lafayette Square thing where he was, you know, kind of showing aggression and violence to protesters. All of that would come back very quickly. And then the top down part is he's got already an army of people um, trying to uh, kind of, as they say, find the pockets of independence and seize them. And that would be mass purges of the civil service, um, purges of the DOJ, anyone who can hurt him, the judiciary. That would be the kind of bureaucratic and legal part. So, so those things would all work together, and the result would be uh, that our democracy would be crushed. So he, in a sense, he'd be insulating himself and setting himself up to be president for life, which 
he's joked about or half joked about in the past that that's that is his dream he looks at people like putin and others kim jong-un and he's jealous of those people who have not just the adulation and the hero worship but the the loyalty and longevity in the office there's a lot of speculation about his cabinet if he was to ever become president again <laughs> like he would just fill it with sycophants and co-conspirators that doesn't seem unlikely does it oh no and um we could even find uh definitely uh, i would not be surprised if marjorie taylor green was uh, a cabinet official and we everyone likes to laugh at her and see her as a clown but she's an a very effective information warrior. And her um, talking points coincide on many uh, subjects with the Kremlins. She's, she's uh, much more skilled uh, than as an extremist. <laughs> yeah. When people see her, so she could have a cabinet position. Um, and we would see a cabinet filled with um, the MAGA cult lackeys, like her, people whose loyalty is proven because the first time around, he had difficulty finding people who were loyal enough. So there was a lot of hiring and firing. And by the way, all autocrats do that. Um, even if they're back in the one party state days, they were always, nobody could be loyal enough for them. So they were always hiring and firing. And it's a very dysfunctional model of governments. But the most extreme, destructive people would come, uh, would rise to the top. Um, and that's the kind of government we would have. You know, you're 100% right about that clown thing. John Wayne Gacy was a clown, and we know the carnage he created. Uh, I want to ask you a question which I never he really hear anyone ask anyone, and it's hard for me to accept why it's not ever asked, because if we talk about Trump in the way we do, and we call him a sociopath and say he's dangerous, and we compare him to other dictators and autocrats, and we know what those guys do, it's hard not to ask the following question. If he is truly capable of becoming president again and locking up his opponents, is he ever capable of killing his opponents? Would that be the difference between Trump and all the others, that he wouldn't go that far? Or would he actually go that far? And the fact that I'm even asking this question and we can have a discussion on it as a remote possibility even is really chilling. Oh, he well, he already tried to have his vice president killed. And there's ways that you can do this. You can order a hit or you can put the clues out and signal to people that they should do it for you. Well, that's what Michael, right? Co you know, Michael Cohen said. His strategy was never to just directly ask for someone, yes. but you knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah, and it's all in code. And this overlaps with organized crime, too, where because you fear you're being wiretapped or whatever, you, you there's... And Trump's been doing these things for decades, um, also in his business model. So he just took a lot of his um, his his manners that were all about that and transferred them to politics. But that's also what all the guys I study do. Um, they have to have the plausible deniability. But it, it's very clear he would, um, one way or the other, um, find ways to erase those people. Um, to have political assassinations. We've already, we already had somebody showing up at Nancy Pelosi's house who uh, was a MAGA uh, cult follower and got instead her husband. We have Charlie Kirk, um, who is the founder, you know, founder of uh, one of the founders of Turning Point USA, a large and powerful organization, 
he has said that Biden should have the death penalty. So uh, there's many people calling for, um, you know, death or harm to come. But the, the Pence thing is very interesting. And when we ha- when they had that debate recently and uh, on Fox News of the GOP candidates and the question was asked infamously, um, you know, do you think that Pence did the right thing in January 6th? And but nobody wanted to touch. The real question is about why Trump put Pence in that situation. And no one wanted to talk about that Pence didn't trust his own secret service and was fleeing for his life. And there was a noose on Capitol Hill with his name on it. And that is straight out of authoritarian politics. So if you put that together with also the fact that he has, is on record, Trump is on record saying he'd like to shoot protesters. Um, of course, he's like a mob boss um, and violence is uh, kind of part of his. Well, he did say he, he, he talked about shooting somebody in January 2016. Mm-hmm. And that was our red flag. So right. he would, there's no way he would not actually use violence. On you know, people. that's really interesting what you just said. We all t- always talk about his, I could shoot somebody and still have my support and not lose support. And we evaluate that statement as a factual statement of him actually being this great marketer who knows his audience and knows what they would or wouldn't do. But I've never heard anyone suggest that that in the way you're suggesting, that the mere fact that that was in his head is a red flag of his capabilities. That's yeah, really interesting. I, I was out in you know downtown New York, and I I don't know, it was like scrolling through my phone, and I saw that, and I rushed home and I wrote a piece um, about because this this was if you study fascists <laughs> that this is. This was awful. And then I tracked very carefully what happened uh, right after that. And within two weeks of him saying that, people were, I think they just didn't want to deal with it. It was just so out there. But that's when Jeff Sessions um, reached out and endorsed Trump and went to one of his campaign events and put on a MAGA hat. And that's when his kind of, uh, he was received by the party elite after he did that. The other thing that happened uh, within those two weeks is Jimmy Fallon had him on his show, didn't ask about that, and ruffled his hair and joked with him. And um, so, so this these two things, one from the world of entertainment, one from you know uh, sympathizers, um, show that America was totally not ready to deal with someone like Trump. Um, and I knew how dangerous he was because of what I studied. You mentioned before the Republican Party, and you, you've recently said the GOP is an authoritarian party. This is a party that has as its front runner someone who, according to the latest poll that was released by the Wall Street Journal this morning, he's leading Ron DeSantis, who's in second place, by 46 points. He's twice impeached, twice indicted. How is it possible that this is the <laughs> front runner? of one of our two major parties? Because the party is no longer in democracy. <clears throat> we have a big drama here. We're not like other countries where there's lots of parties. We're a bipartisan democracy. And now one of those two giant parties has left democracy and has become a party that, um, that 
it depends on the authoritarian playbook tools that I talk about in my book. Propaganda, that's the big lie. Lying, corruption, because election denial and refusing to leave office and all of that uh, is corruption. Supporting a convicted felon is corruption at a big level. And then violence, of course. What was January 6th was when, when the you know, it didn't work to overturn the election by, quote, finding votes. They assaulted the Capitol with violence. Mm -hmm. So that that is a party that that has is no longer um, within any kind of norms or frames or philosophy of democracy. So that's what you get. And is a party enthralled to a cult leader, um, to a leader who has a personality cult, just like all the other people I study. And so it makes perfect sense. Once you've once a party has yoked itself to somebody like that, um, we have Berlusconi example in Italy where he, he had 20 indictments by the time he left uh, involuntarily. And the party was just right there with him. And he was talking about witch hunts and prosecutors being leftist, Marxist, stooges, the whole, it's like all the same. And the party never abandoned him. <clears throat> but in that case, Berlusconi created that party, Forza Italia. He created it. It was his thing. This is all the more extraordinary because, because this is an old, the grand old party. And here comes Trump from outside and he takes them over in like four years. Um, and they're still with him to the point where they would, all the, all the front runners, uh, they're not, for, all the other uh, Democratic, sorry, Republican nominees for president or contenders for president, they would vote for him even if he's a convicted felon. That's how total is control is. Yeah, no, that was astounding. And, you know, it's funny, the grand old party, I remember growing up and, you know, always hearing that it was a party of Reagan and they worshiped Reagan and he was the standard bearer. And I used to look at Reagan and go, that guy's awful. He's so conservative. He's terrible for the country. But like today, you look back at Reagan and he's like Bernie Sanders by comparison <laughs> to what's happening with Trump and Trumpism. Um, in your book, Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present, you said, quote, coming into politics with decades of improper business practices behind him, Trump knew that corruption can be contagious. And so that's really what we're dealing with right now with the Republican Party. It's like a contagious disease and a fever that just keeps rising. Yeah. And. What what these guys do is they make it with with statements like I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. They make it clear who they are and they make it clear they will reward corruption. They will reward lawlessness. And so they attract into the party uh, people and, and into their service um, as, you know, like uh, chief of staff, like Mark Meadows. Mm -hmm. um, they attract people who were perhaps mildly corrupt or whatever kind of corrupt we want to call them, and then were led by him to do things they never dreamed they would do. And I wrote a piece in my uh, Substack newsletter, Lucid, on Mark Meadows mm -hmm. um, about he's he, the paradigmatic case. When I look at this mugshot, that's what I see. Somebody who was already corrupt and racist and anti, you know, said Obama should be sent back to, to Africa, all the things. And then found his calling with Trump, but what was also led to do things he never imagined. But these leaders also um, lead people to, they make them complicit in their crimes, and then they lead them to think that they're going to be safe. 
because he is untouchable. And as long as he's untouchable, they're untouchable if they stay loyal. And so what's just happened with the mugshots and turning themselves in and the fact that Meadows and Giuliani are looking at Trump's mugshot, this is incredible. This is a moment. Now, I don't think they're going to have a moment of reckoning and break away. Who knows? But we're on a journey with all this stuff that um, other countries have gone through. But we only have these two parties. So those who are disaffected don't have anywhere else to go. You know, the mugshot, I was going to ask you about that with Mark Meadows, because his seems to stand out in a way that's different than Trump and Giuliani. Giuliani, to me, just seems like pathetic. Like he, his mugshot is, he's trying to look tough, but it's like he's panicked. You can see the panic. You can see like he's got the legal bills in his head. That's what he's thinking. Trump yeah. is just performative. It's more performance art. But Mark Meadows, there is an anger. There is an, like, he's enraged. He is mm -hmm. scowling. He is like, mm -hmm. like he could commit violence in that moment. And it's kind of terrifying in a way because he's not a stupid individual. He's a bright man and he's very astute politically. And that photo, to your point, demonstrates that he is still drunk on that Kool-Aid that you talk totally. about in terms of Trump's going to get back and he's going to protect us. Yeah. And unfortunately, now that things are getting very real for these people where there's many people indicted. Also, um, let's not forget like the sentence for Biggs and other Proud Boys, uh, because the GOP is really entwined with these extremist groups and Proud Boys are like a de facto paramilitary. It's a whole network of things that getting disrupted with all these um, indictments and jail sentences. So right now they are um, in revenge mode and they will do anything necessary. That's why here comes, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, we're going to defund the government. We're going to, you know, hold the government hostage. They're, 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 in, they're not only in damage control, they're in panic mode, but they're full of revenge. And I, I, when I was writing the piece on Meadows, I looked at the mugshot because um, I work on images and I've, I, my, my previous book to Strongman was about fascist film propaganda and, and, you know, so I spend a lot of time looking at images and I looked at that mugshot, it's super creepy and scary for a long time before I wrote the piece. And that's what I saw somebody who a little bit can't believe this is, they're so arrogant. He can't mm -hmm. believe this is happening to him, but also thoroughly, um, thoroughly, as you say, drunk with the, the, the Trump cult and not willing to surrender, um, just like his you know, his, his cult leader. But this, Mark Meadows, does he really think, given all the evidence, given all the trials that are c coming up, that Trump could likely become president again? That just seems so irrational and illogical for a guy like him. Like Giuliani to me is delusional, so I could see him thinking that. But Mark Meadows should know better that Trump, this is not going to end Not really. Not really, because Mark Meadows is a co-founder of the Freedom Caucus. And Mark Meadows was, is the one actually who was circulating uh, uh, the, the slogan, we're going to take back our country uh, in 2012, in 2013, 2014. 
And then Trump ended up using it in January 6th. So Mark Meadows is like part of the larger problem that produced Trump. And then he found himself in the middle of this vortex. But, you know, the most one of the most significant things is Cassidy Hutchison testified that this was very chilling when the violence started. Um, and so she was an aide, you know, a, a high, a, an aide to the Hyde Trump aide. And when the violence started on January 6th, Meadows didn't even look up from his phone. He wasn't, he had no reaction because he, he expected it. And he just kept scrolling, you know, and he was the fixer of the coup. He was the person who connected everybody. Um, and so, of course, it's not logical, but these people see they're not in a democratic framework. That's all I can say. They're, they are in an authoritarian framework, in a lawless framework, and that the 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 logic and the way people think about things is not the way that we would expect. You've been commenting on Bill Barr in his rehabilitation campaign. Um, <laughs> in your opinion, how big a role did he play in the enabling and empowering of Trump? No, a huge role because you know tr Trump is. Trump is a crook. He's always been a crook. He comes from, you know, outside of politics and he needed, he needed people from different worlds to legitimate him. And William Barr is, you know, part of that kind of radical right Catholic, um, very establishment. Um, and he needed that. So when Barr became his attorney general and Barr did everything he asked, Barr you know, uh, was like making deals with er with Erdogan because Erdogan, you know, called Trump and pressured him to try and allow a Turkish bank to avoid sanctions. Barr did it. Um, Barr mischaracterized the results of the Mueller investigation um, at Trump's request. He was fully in it. And so it's really gross. You know, they write these books and then they go around uh, saying never Trump. But then when press... Barr several times has said that he would vote for Trump. It's the same as the Stooges on the stage in the debate. Oh, yes, we'd vote for Trump. He hasn't really broken with Trump. He's just trying to milk his his role as the voice of conscience, but he has no conscience. Um, he's part of the problem. It, it's just unconscionable that these people would vote for him again, knowing everything they know. I, I I but, just, I don't but, know, maybe I'm just crazy, but every day of my life, I, that's the thing I wake up with and go to bed with every day. How do they do that? It's because um, the things that you see as heinous, they see as good. We're, we're in, I call it the upside down world of authoritarianism. The more, if you are a party that is dependent on lying and corruption and violence, the people who you admire are the people who know how to do that the best. Mm. And it's always been like that. So the Nazis, uh, you know, they would recruit, going back to the corruption is contagious. So you got to have corrupt people there because if you have people who stand up for the rule of law, it's like uncomfortable and it it's just doesn't work. So you have to have the lawless around you. And so the Nazis uh, used to go to prisons and recruit, you know, inventive criminals. Um, so they had this guy uh, who was, you know, a master uh, briber and a master fraudster, and they elevated him to a very high position. 
so that he could shake down people for the Nazis officially. So that's what they do. So you see people like George Santos, like, why is he still there? Right. Why is he there? Because that's who the party is now. Actually, George Santos is the heart of the party. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's so just you, shocking. To, that that's the really truth, still there. Mm-hmm. Like nobody has, and they don't. And the more you see, the more they all become criminals or complicit or accomplices, which is what people like Trump specialize in. Everybody around them has to be taken down and debased to their level, and then no one will speak out or move against any of the others because they too have secrets. Mm-hmm. So it becomes like, that's like the Kremlin, everybody, the oligarchs until the war started and it all got dis- destabilized. All the oligarchs kept each other secrets because they're all complicit and the same in all the other regimes. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a perfect storm for fascism and autocracy in this country. You have a corrupt, treasonous ex-president and current GOP frontrunner by 46 points, a rogue complicit, sycophantic GOP Congress, uh, powerful right-wing media ecosystem, and a brainwashed voter base, right? In, mm-hmm. in all your years studying and teaching fascism and knowing that subject as well as you do, how closely do you compare Trump and America to other dictators and failed democracies? In other words, how concern should we really be in this country right now? Oh, extremely concerned. And everyone listening needs to reach out now to people who either are don't vote, are independent voters, um, or uh, I know this is hard to do, um, you know, reach out to those who are still in the disinformation tunnel, as I call it, who are brainwashed. Um, because, and make outcome arguments. Like, is this really going to be good for the United States? If you know a veteran, is this good for national security that they've held up all the, that they've weakened the military by holding up the appointments? Is having a convicted felon who, who staged a coup, is that going to be good for American prestige in the world? There's, there's all kinds of outcome arguments you can make, uh, with people. So we, we, this is, this is the, Trump calls it the final battle. What he means is the final battle to get in back to power and shut down the democracy. Um, so this, the next, you know, what, six, the next 16 months or whatever, this is the time to mobilize. Scary times. Yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Fascinating insights. I love the conversation and we'll look forward to the next one. Thank you. Me too. Take care. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroyd. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. If you like what we're doing here, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. Have a great week.